Good morning, everyone. Well, some of you have been around a while may remember that years ago, our church had a relationship with some missionaries in Jamaica. And in 2012 and 2013, was blessed to go on those trips to Jamaica. And while we were there, our primary job was we were doing construction work. At least the years I was there, we were rebuilding, repairing the church where the missionary was helping services there in Jamaica. So we spent every day working in the hot sun doing construction. Uh, one year we also did a vacation Bible school, BBS for the kids in the evening who were a part of that church or in that community. So we worked every day and at the very end, the, the day before we left, we did take a fun day to enjoy being there. We drove to the other side of the country near the town of Ocho Rios, where Jamaica has this attraction called Dunn's River Falls. Dunn's River Falls. And this is an attraction unlike anything you'll find in the United States of America. What you do is you pay for your admission, and you find yourself at the bottom of a series of waterfalls, and the attraction is you climb up the waterfalls. You just go for it, and you climb over the rocks and make your way up the top. And that's the direction you have to go. You have to climb up the waterfall, because especially early on, it's very steep. You have to sometimes climb with your hands and knees to get over the rocks and make your way up. It would be dangerous to try to go back. In fact, if you look at the picture, the picture on the right, that's Elder Tom Toon saying, never again will he go up that side of the waterfall. But when you climb up, you can't go back, because if you look, you see, you would just fall. You keep going, keep going, and you do have quite a sense of accomplishment when you finally make it to the top. Well, today we're going to see a passage that will tell us about how the Christian life is in some ways similar to that. It's a climbing up, and it would be dangerous to go back. The only direction in the Christian life is upward and onward. We cannot turn back. Now, life is hard. It's difficult and challenging. We may be tempted to think, you know, maybe I can turn around, go back to the way things were when they were easier. But our passage today, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39, will tell us that Jesus is better than turning back. Jesus is better than turning back. Because like falling down a waterfall, if we try to turn back from Jesus, that only leads to certain judgment. And so instead, we need to remember where we've been and where we are going so that we can practice faithful endurance right now in the present. If you're not already there, I'd encourage you to turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 26 through 39. And once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's word. You can find this if you have a Bible or online. There's also a blue Bible in the seat back in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that one home with you. We'll also put the verse up on the screen. So Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26, I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Our author says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think? will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. 
I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that tells us of your son, Jesus Christ, and the great salvation that we have in him. Lord, thank you for the warning in this text that turning back will lead to judgment. So instead, God, help us to remember where we've been, remember where we are going, the eternal home that we're heading toward. Inspire, challenge us to practice faithful endurance now in the present. Thank you that it's not something we have to do by our own effort, but that you provide your grace, your spirit works in us, the grace that you provide through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that he may be our focus this morning. To borrow words from John the Baptist, may he increase God. May I decrease, may all of the distractions be put aside so that we can see him clearly and what he has done for us. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you've been here with us, you know we've been in the book of Hebrews. This is a letter to Hebrew or Jewish background believers, followers of Jesus. And the issue the author writing to them is encountering is they want to go back. They want to go back to Judaism. They're, they're tired of being a Christian. They want to go back to what they knew before. And he's trying to tell them that Jesus is better. He's gone through a long section of the book of Hebrews talking about how Jesus is a better high priest. He's a better representative for us before God. And he's a better sacrifice. He can pay for sin, restore us to God better than anything else. Last week, we talked about what our response to that should be. Because Jesus is better, what should we do? Well, we should draw near to God. We should hold on to our eternal hope. And we should encourage one another by gathering together. So he gave us that application. And now to support that application, the author gives what is probably the harshest warning in this book. He warns us, he tells us that turning back leads to God's judgment. Turning back leads to God's judgment. If you're following the outline, that's the first blank. This is a warning for those who are deliberately or willfully keep on sinning. This deliberate nature is emphasized. Look at what he says in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's setting up a contrast for us. He's saying what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to be drawing near to God, holding on to hope in him, encouraging one another by gathering together. If you're not doing those things, then you're deliberately going the other way. And he warns them that no sacrifice can cover sins that we continue in, sins we refuse to repent of by a sinful lifestyle. Now, let's be clear about what he's talking about. We all sin. None of us are perfect. We all fall short of God, even if we come to faith in him. But he is specifically addressing people who repeatedly, consistently stay in deliberate patterns of sin and do not repent, do not turn from it. He's specifically warning against those who reject the faith. And we've seen this throughout Hebrews. We saw it back in chapter 6, for example. Here he seems to be reflecting an Old Testament concern. The Old Testament talked about those who sin deliberately against God. The book of Numbers said, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he's a native or he's sojourner, if he reviles the Lord, then that person shall be cut off from among his people. Our author today is addressing those who claim to be a Christian, but then turned away and left the faith. Their lives proved they were not genuine believers. One time they were part of the church, but now they are not. Scripture tells us that this will happen. Some will be in a church body and then they will go. They will leave the faith. I think the clearest passage about it is in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, if they had been genuine believers, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Now, it's easy to read a passage like that or this warning and your mind pop in with people. Oh yeah, I remember this person who was Christian and they're not here anymore. And I understand that temptation, but we should feel this warning for ourselves. It's easy to criticize others. It's harder to look at ourselves and think, am I sometimes tempted to walk away? We need to be careful that it doesn't describe us. I read a powerful quote from the scholar Al Mohler. He said, hell is full of people who have a clear understanding of the gospel, but never bowed the knee to Christ as king. This is a book that you can read, you can learn, you could memorize this book, and that doesn't matter before God. You could be here every single week. That is not what you will be judged on. None of those things are a guarantee. The only place we have for forgiveness is in Jesus Christ, in a relationship with him, believing, trusting in him. And there is no forgiveness to be found outside of him. If we reject Christ, we reject his people, then there is no hope. Peter speaks about this as well in one of his letters. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And it gets worse. Verse 27 tells us what the result of that is. In our text, verse 27 says the result is a fury of raging fire, a fiery indignation. It says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We sang a song earlier today that has a really odd lyric in it, but it's reflective from the Old Testament, from the Psalms. It talks about God, a fire goes out before him, consumes 
or burns up all his enemies. This is what God does. The author's building a picture off of Old Testament descriptions of judgment. Speaking of the return of Jesus Christ, when he returns, he will defeat his adversaries and enemies. And that fire of judgment will consume and devour. Here's a passage not from the Old Testament. This is from the New Testament. Paul says, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And I know that these are really hard verses to read and think about. It's not a pleasant thing we want to wrap our minds around. But the reason warnings are in scripture is to draw our focus and attention, to see, whoa, something serious is going on here. When we read things like that, it should be call for us to pause, to think for a moment and think, wow, that sounds terrible. Is that verse talking about me or is it talking about something else? How do I know that? Well, let me look at my life. Is my life reflecting Christ? And if not, we should ask questions. We should ask, do I really know him or am I just pretending to be a part of his people? Our author keeps going. He appeals to the Old Testament to prove that God's judgment is coming. In verses 28 and 29, he says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that's true, then how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? We've seen this before in Hebrews. It's a lesser to greater argument. He's saying if breaking the Old Testament law, if two or three people saw it, that led to death, then how much worse is it to reject God and reject Jesus Christ? That's about two or three people put to death. That's a reference to what the Old Testament law itself said. It gave this warning, this stipulation. It's from Deuteronomy 17. Probably won't read it. You can see it there. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, that's when someone was put to death. But the point the author's making is there is a worse punishment for those who say they know Christ, profess to know him, and then reject him. And the reason it's worse, he tells us in verse 29, is because claiming to be a Christian, claiming to know Jesus, and then rejecting him, well, that would be like spurning Christ, trampling him underfoot. That would be like profaning what he did on the cross and outraging his Holy Spirit. There's three parts there in in verse 29. Trampling on Christ, trampling on his identity, rejecting, hating who Jesus is. There's profaning, rejecting the power of Christ's blood and death. It's saying, yeah, I used to think Jesus saves, but now I just view him as a regular person who died. His death was just a common, normal occurrence. I used to think it was something big, but I, I don't think so anymore. And so when it says sanctified there, it's here probably referring to someone the church recognized as a believer, but has now rejected that claim because they have outraged or insulted the work of the Holy Spirit. They've denied that God's Spirit brings God's grace and mercy to us. And by rejecting God, rejecting the work of Christ, rejecting the Holy Spirit, it deserves eternal punishment because it's rejecting God himself. It's knowing better but turning away from him. Friends, we need to feel these warnings. I don't like preaching things like this, but this is what God's Word says, and we need to feel it because it's 
not that hard to look like a Christian on the outside. You show up here on Sunday morning for an hour or two. Maybe you add a few pieces to your wardrobe with a cross or a nice fancy little verse in your house. It's not that hard to look like a Christian. But God sees and knows our hearts. He knows what's going on on the inside. And it's only his true children, those who are truly committed, that last. The rest experience his judgment. And for his final proof of this, he's quoting the Old Testament again from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36. In our passage, it's verse 30 and 31. They say, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. This passage tells us that God will judge. On earth, we have judges, we have courts, but those judicial systems and the justice they provide is often imperfect and it's incomplete. We don't often see the full justice that we think should occur in those courts. But God, in his timing, he brings perfect and total justice. He writes every wrong. I heard a pastor preaching on this passage. It's a pastor in Atlanta. His name is John Anwuchekwa is his name. He's pastor of a church in Atlanta. And he was speaking on this text. He said, earthly justice is distorted. God's justice is delayed. What he means by that is the justice we find on earth is distorted. It's imperfect. It's incomplete. We never fully get everything righted, every wrong corrected. God's justice, though, is perfect. It just doesn't come right away. It comes in his timing. By delayed, it doesn't mean that God's late. It just means it's not immediate, but it will come. And our passage says, verse 31, that it is a fearful, dreadful, terrifying thing to fall into the hands of judgment of this living God. That word fearful is emphasized here. This verse, verse 31, that is a verse to remember. That is a verse to hold on to. Maybe it's one that you need to memorize because scripture does speak a lot about God's love and grace and, and wonderfully so. He shows abundant love to us. He shows us grace when we don't deserve it. But God is also a God of justice. He acts in his justice. And when he does, it should be terrifying because he is alive and he brings his glory about. This isn't just something this random author said. Jesus himself talked about this. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus said, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's Jesus talking. He's saying God is worthy of reverential fear. There is no one greater than God, and you do not want to experience his judgment. Back again in the Old Testament, God said, See now that I, even I, am he. There is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. This is who God is. And I think that even as Christians, we should have some degree of fear of God. We should be, have a, an appropriate level of fear. It's a right response to God's awesome power. 
as I was thinking of it, I thought of an illustration. It's not a perfect illustration. It breaks down if you think about it too much, but, but, but just go with me for a minute here. I know for myself, I am afraid of the U.S. military. I'm afraid of the U.S. military. It is the strongest military power in the world. I wouldn't want it turned on me and attacking me. I'm afraid of that awesome power. But in my day-to-day life, I don't live in anxious fear of it. I don't tremble thinking that the U.S. military is coming to get me. And the reason I don't is because I know what that power is for. I know it exists to protect me as an American citizen. And as long as I stay loyal to the United States, as long as I keep the laws of this nation, I don't have to worry about the military attacking me. Well, I think in a similar way, that's the way God's people can think about God's power and have fear of God. Respect for his awesome authority, but not quaking every day, worried that he's going to strike us down. Now, there are some differences there. The at least two I I thought of. One is the U.S. military, as great as it is, you take all its power and firepower together, every single nuke, and multiply that by billions and trillions, and you still don't equal God's power. We're not really talking about the same thing. And the other difference is, as for the military, I, we, have some say in what they do. Through the leaders we elect, that they determine what the military does, how it responds. But you and I have no influence or say in what God does and what he decides. We can ask him for things in prayer, but only he decides. A fear of God means that we do not play games with God. We're not in a position to bargain with him or to make a deal with God. We cannot control him. And again, I know that thinking about God's judgment and things he brings, it's Not something we necessarily want to be thinking about on a Sunday morning, but it should be a challenge to us. We should think, do I actually know this great, awesome God who has this power? Have I turned from sin, responded to him? Do I have a relationship with him? Because it's only by knowing Christ that we will be safe. But if we do know him, the rest of the passage speaks to us. Our author then speaks to true believers and encourages them to remember where you have been, and to remember where you are going. The author says we need to remember where you have been and where you are going. Looking back and looking forward. In these verses, our author starts with a reminder of, to the Hebrews of their previous faith, where they have been. He's calling them to look back on their faith. Let's read verses 32 through 34. They say, but recall in the former days, When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why did they do that? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. He's trying to remind them of something. He's reminding them of when they were first enlightened, when they first understood the truth of the gospel and accepted it. They lived for God then boldly and passionately. It kind of reminds me uh, something that I've even experienced. Maybe you have too. It's often new believers, those who just came to faith in Christ, who are often the most passionate 
It can often challenge those of us who have known God for a long time to live more for him. Those of us who have been worn down by circumstances of life, we sometimes need that passion, that fire for Christ. And these people showed it. When their faith was tested early on, they remained firm and faithful. They endured hard and terrible suffering, persecution, conflicts, and challenges. And we're told they did it with joy. They must have known the truth of what Jesus said. Jesus said that he has said things to us that in him we may have peace. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When they first became Christians, they knew this and they relied on Christ. The terrible suffering they experienced did not erode their faithfulness. They stayed true to Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. I heard him speaking about this passage as well. And he said, suffering will either make you a worse Christian person or a better one, but you can never stay the same. When suffering and challenge comes into our life, it will either make us worse, push us away from our Lord, or it will make us grow more to be like him. And it seems for these Hebrew believers in the early days of their faith, it made them better. They experienced public ridicule and insult. They were beaten. They helped others. They helped those in jail. Their property was stolen and confiscated, but they were not ashamed to make their faith public, even though they knew that public faith will have a cost. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They had to go above and beyond in their faith. They even stood with those who were mistreated worse than they were. Our text speaks about those who were imprisoned for their beliefs. The same way that we try to stand with those who are persecuted around the world. It seems the authorities tried to identify their leaders and and arrest them. We see that in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters. But they stood by those in prison. They prayed for them. The prison system of that time did not have... uh, provide meals for you. If you were going to survive, you needed people to be generous. And these Hebrew believers were. They cared for those who were suffering for their faith, as should we. But as I was reading that passage, you know what point stood out to me the most? That in the middle of these things that Paul lists, he implies and says that they were evicted from their homes because of their beliefs. Did you see that there? It said you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Joyfully accepted the governing authority stealing their property and their homes because they were Christians. Wow, what faith there. Let's be honest with one another. Would you joyfully accept it? If someone stole your home, your property, your land, things you had because you were a follower of Christ? I think that as Americans, that that kind of runs against everything we believe in, but scripture calls us to respond with joy. I think this is probably a similar kind of thing that James was talking about in his book. And James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, when it says joy, I don't think it means that they were overly happy and excited about it. I don't think it necessarily means they had smiles on their faces as it was going on. 
but it means they had their priorities straight. It didn't shake their faith. They knew, as our text says, that they had a better possession, an abiding one to come. They knew that heaven was better. But the sad part about these verses is that they're kind of given in the past tense. The author is saying this was how you used to do things, but something had changed. They were suffering again. And it seems that now they were tempted to leave the faith altogether. So our author has to encourage them to look back at what they had done, what God had done in their lives to bring them to this point. These were people who joyfully accepted people stealing their homes. But now they're like, I think the Christian life is too hard for me now. And the author's saying, no, look back at what you have done, what God has done in your life. I think this is pointing to the value of looking back at our life to see spiritual growth. It's the same way that if you're married, you could look back at pictures from your wedding or look back over the course of your life or, or look at a wedding ring and remember there was a time I loved someone and made a commitment to them. And that commitment should then motivate us, encourage us to show love and grace to that person even when we don't feel like it. And in the same way, looking back at our life and seeing times where we were committed to God and living for Him, that we praise God for that faithfulness. And then continue to follow him. It should motivate us to move forward. I think this text is a very honest one, a very encouraging one. It's talking about seasons of spiritual growth in our life. There may be times we're growing a lot, doing great things for God. And then there may be times that may be really hard and really difficult. And when we have those low times, we should ask, why? What's going on? So friends, if there was a time that you were more faithful to God in the past, Maybe it was a year ago. Maybe it was pre-COVID or something. I was doing all these great things for God and now I really don't do it anymore. Well, while you are still breathing, it's not too late to live for the Lord. So believer, look back at your life. See those areas of spiritual growth God has brought you through and let that motivate you to move forward, to keep climbing that waterfall or mountain. Turn from inactivity, sin, whatever you're in now and pursue Christ Turn your focus to where you are going, to where you are going. Not only remember where we've been, but where we are going. Our present suffering motivates us to move forward. This is the way that suffering is often talked about in Scripture. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why should we do that, Jesus? For your reward is great in heaven. Why did these Hebrew believers endure? Why did they persevere in the past? Because they knew they had a lasting and abiding possession to come in eternity. They knew they had a home with God. They knew God's promises to reward those who persevere and continue in the faith. They knew they had eternity forever with God to look forward to so they could endure suffering. We sang it in the song, I think, just before we wrapped up. This world has nothing for me. Friends, there is nothing that you could have here on earth and then lose that is worth comparing to what is to be gained with God in eternity. There's nothing here that ultimately lasts. And there's nothing here that if we lost, we would not find something better on the other side. What we lose has nothing 
compared to what we gain. When we do that, we're modeling the lives of many followers of God who came before us. Pastor Tom will be preaching next week from Hebrews 11, and he'll talk about this verse, which describes the faith of Old Testament saints. And it says, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God's people know that this earth as it exists now is not our permanent home. So if the things of this earth, the things in your life now upset you, if they tear you down, wear you out, if they cause you to despair, then discipline yourself to look to what is to come. Yes, look back at the past, see God's faithfulness, look ahead, see where God is leading us, and for now, keep going. The way we do that is by practicing faithful endurance. The way we keep going now is by practicing faithful endurance. Our author, even though he's seen this struggle they're having, he looks at their lives and the fact that they have been persevering convinces him that they are believers. And so he urges them to endure, to not turn back, to persevere in the faith. As he says in verses 35 and 36, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. If we publicly reject Christ, then we're abandoning the confidence we have to approach God, to come before him in prayer. We're saying, I don't want Jesus in public, then you don't get him in private either. We're abandoning the fact that we can come to our Lord. Plus, he says, there is a reward there. There's a wonderful reward for a lifetime of faithfulness. Again, those who followed God in the Old Testament knew this. I like this verse talking about Moses that we'll talk about in a few weeks. It's said of Moses that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And the reason he considered it worthy to suffer for God is because he was looking to the reward. Our author calls us to the same. He says, practice that faithful, patient endurance. It's a reminder to them that yes, Jesus' grace is what saves us, but if it saves us, it produces a result. We persevere in the faith. Jesus' people keep going. Jesus said that you will be hated for all for his name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Christ, our author, calling us to persevere, continue in the faith. We need to hold on to the hope of our salvation, as we talked about last week. One theologian named Charles Hodge, he put it this way, very simply, our security is perseverance. How do we know we are saved? We continue in the faith. We ask ourselves, do I trust Jesus? Do I rely on him? Do I rely on what he has done First and foremost, is he the one solely who saves me? Say, yeah, I I think I'm relying on him. Well, then are we living for him? Is he working in our lives? If we can see that, then we can say, yes, that's how I know I'm heading toward him. I'm heading toward my eternal home. And if we can't answer that, we think, well, I think I believe in him, but it's not really making a difference, then we should ask some questions. 
That doesn't mean we're relying on our work, what we do to try to get to heaven. That's not it at all. But we're faithfully trusting and living in Christ's work on our behalf. We have a changed life because we see the promises that are to come ahead of us. The Apostle John put it this way, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The Christian life looks forward to the future. We keep moving forward to where we are going until we are home. To prove this, as our author does so many times, he quotes from the Old Testament. This time he quotes from a prophet Habakkuk, from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, from the Greek translation. As he says in verses 37 and 38, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We persevere. We continue living for God because we know the end is near. We long for hope for Christ's return. We keep going because he is coming soon. We must live by faith and not shrink back, not turn back from following him. This week I was actually reading through uh, 1 John. And when I did, I just stumbled across this verse that I think describes it well. 1 John 2.28 says, Now little children, abide Remain in Christ. Live in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We don't want to shrink back from Christ say, oh no, Jesus, I didn't want to see you now. No, we want to live for him so that we're ready when he returns. That brings us to verse 39 where our author is confident that the people he's talking to himself and I hope describing us as well, that we will not be those who turn back, who draw or shrink back from Christian faith because that only leads to destruction or your translation may say perdition. The author is confident that these Hebrew people have genuine faith, that they will persevere to their final salvation. As he says in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The author looks at them and he says, I see God's faith and grace in your life and I'm confident that you will continue in it. I see that you are believing in Jesus and trusting your soul to him, that it's making a difference in your life. And that's the only way that you can be safe. And I know that you will continue in it. In many ways, he's trying, even though he's not there, to get beside them and say, you can do it. I believe in you. Keep going. Keep living for the Lord. And that type of encouragement, cheering right at them, uh, it made my mind think of a, a movie. A movie that I was somewhat discouraged to learn is 16 years old. But 16 years ago, there was a cheesy Christian movie about a high school football team called Facing the Giants that came out. Now, I probably shouldn't admit this as a pastor, but I'm pretty cynical about Christian movies. And to be clear, there's a couple scenes that make my eyes roll when I even watch this one. But there is one truly great scene in the movie that I've even seen like on non-Christian videos and stuff. They'll reference this one scene. The football team's a little discouraged and beat down. And so the coach encourages his best player to do a death crawl. That's a football drill where another player is on your back and he's supposed to crawl down the field. And the 
football player, he thinks he can maybe go 30 yards. And the coach says, well, why don't you put on a blindfold and I'll just uh, help you get down the field. The whole time he's going first walking and then on his hands and knees next to him saying, keep going, don't quit, don't quit. If I had the rights for it, maybe I'd I'd show it, but I I don't know. You can look it up (laughs) yourselves. And the football player finds that when he finally has nothing left and is at the end, instead of going 30 yards or 50 yards, he's gone 100 yards down the whole football field. I think, in a, in a way, that's what our author in Hebrews is doing as well. He's coming to these people, and he's not actually there. He can't be there with them, but he writes to them, and he's right there with them saying, keep going. Don't quit. I know you want to turn back. I know that it's hard to follow Christ, but keep following him. You were doing it in the past. I know you can continue to be faithful. And this is what we church family should do for one another. We should pray for one another, support one another in the midst of difficult times. Now to do that, that requires a degree of humility. That means we have to humble ourselves, be honest with one another about where we are struggling. Be humble enough to ask for help. In, in our culture and even in a church sometime, there's a temptation to make it seem like your life is all put together, that you have everything right in your life and there's no issue going on with you. No, friends, this is not a performance. This is a place where we help one another. We should be humble enough to be honest, to say, I am struggling with this. Remember what we talked about last week, if you were here. We gather together, not so we can look nice and appreciate how perfect our lives are. No, we gather together to encourage one another. And in that way, this verse, verse 39, is really a conclusion, a summary of this whole passage. I could have saved us all time and just read verse 39, but following through, we see the whole thing. As our author says, we are not those who shrink back, who turn back and are destroyed. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Those who turn back experience God's displeasure. They experience judgment and destruction. But if we remember where we've been and we look forward to where we're going, it will build our faith. And that faith will lead to the preservation of our souls. We will persevere in Christ. Now, if you want to know what that kind of faith looks like, we'll be here next week because Pastor Tom's going to talk about that from chapter 11. But what about us for today? What do we do now? Well, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, then then I have bad news for you. That bad news I have is those verses we talked about at the beginning, that is the future that's in front of you. I I don't say that to try to manipulate you. That's, That's not my desire at all. It can be very easy to take, twist these things, to try to provoke a response. That's not what I'm doing. I'm giving you the warning that God's fiery fury and judgment is what waits those who do not know him. So I encourage you to turn to him to come to Christ, to speak to somebody about how can I know Jesus? Have that conversation today, now, before it is too late. Now, if you're here and you profess, you claim, yes, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Oh, then then I'm so glad to hear that. But friend, you are not home yet. It's not the time to kick up the lazy boy and relax. No, you still have a life to lead. Don't quit. Finish strong. Those who are Christ's true children, they finish their races well. Will you? Will you finish well? The way we do that, our author says, is by remembering what God has done in the past, looking forward 
to what's in the future, and then now in the present, practicing faithful endurance. We do that because it honors God, and He is worthy of it.